0: Hey listeners, Becky here. A quick content warning before we start. The second half of today's episode, when we talk about New York, New York, deals with substance abuse and domestic violence. Just a heads up. And now, on with the show. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shripton. And today, I'm joined by curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher and Anthony Oliveira, PhD, writer, and dumpster raccoon. Does anyone remember those Snickers ads that featured Aretha Franklin, Betty White, Liza Minnelli, and other fabulous divas turning bro dudes into grumpy broads because they had low blood sugar? They were awesome because everyone loves a diva. And the 70s provided us with several fabulous women whose performances and legacies remain relevant. Today, we're looking at movies starring two definitive 70s divas, one a mega hit and one a mega flop, but the performances endure. Anthony, what comes to you when you think of a 70s diva that's relevant today?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, The 70s are weird because the studio system is kind of entirely collapsed on itself. Like, it's not farming its own divas anymore. So, like, when you think about 70s divas, you have to think about, like, careers coming from the outside. So it's a lot of, like, recording artists, musicians. Like, you got Cher.
2: Diana Ross. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. You've got Cher and, like, Diana Ross and, like, Dolly Parton, like, Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, like, Olivia Newton-John. Like, it's a lot of people who have, like, recorded music and are like, what if I was in a movie? Like, I think that <laughs> I think of that yeah. when I think of 70s divas.
0: Where they're transferring over from, as you said, like, another media. Like, uh, Barbara Streisand came up from Funny Girl, and they didn't even want her in the film version, but it was like, who else can play Fanny Bryce, right? Mm, like, yeah. that's the—same as Shirley MacLaine comes from Broadway. She was a chorus girl, which we're going to talk about her later.
1: Well, yeah, like the movies were, spoilers, the movies we're doing sort of featured the last of the like studio system darlings, right? Like the the one, actually the other one I think of, especially in 1977 is Carrie Fisher, right? Like that is also one of the great, (laughs) it's weird to think about, but like one of the great children of the studio system turned into a 70s. Diva,
0: I guess? Yeah. I would say she is. Like, she became, like, the brassy kind of— Like, when I think diva, I think someone who knows what they want, a brassy broad, big personality, doesn't take guff. I'm I'm going to use the word guff because yeah. I think that's duly appropriate here. Like, that's, <laughs> the, that's the kind of thing. But is also uh, totally able to have that sort of behavior because of what they're
2: capable of.
1: Exactly. The one reason she— Feels like she's not a 70s diva because she can't, like, belt a disco tune. Like, that's about yes. it, right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Have you seen the Christmas special? She, because she does belt oh, yeah, a disco like,
1: t- I can't imagine a better experience than karaoke with Carrie Fisher, right? Like, that's the dream come true. It'd be karaoke <laughs>
0: with a hyphen, yes. Oh, the branding. Love that too, oh, perfect. <laughs>
2: Alicia, what to you is that like a definitive 70s diva? I mean, I guess I, I interrupted and I shouldn't have, but it is Diana Ross just because I've been um, kind of going through down a rabbit hole with Mahogany and Lady Sings the Blues and this idea that record companies in the 70s were becoming film producers. Mm-hmm. So you have Barry Gordy establishing Motown Productions and then starting the film wing of his wildly successful recording label. Um, and of course, he's going to tap Diana Ross. Um, you know, we're just one year away from The For instance, um, there is this real moment to Anthony's point of specifically disco and R&B musicians becoming huge, huge stars. This is also a year before Greece. So it's interesting to watch this film with this many divas. We're talking about Turning Point, The Turning Point and um, New York, New York. This is really sort of on the doorstep of this major moment in the late 70s into the early 80s uh, with films like Xanadu, a lot of them are flops, and yet they're so, so iconically late 70s and early 80s. They they speak to the Studio 54 era, and I think that's where media was really captivated.
0: I also just think they're visually extremely interesting in a way a lot of other films, even now, aren't. Um, I mean, we're going to be talking about New York, New York, which has... Flaws. We will discuss those no, flaws. No, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what movie did you watch? Uh, but you can't say that they haven't made a visually really interesting movie. Oh, for sure.
2: Somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of, yeah, the word, the word of the day will be C is for cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I think. We'll get into it, but. Q is for quaaludes. Yes, we'll just go
0: down the whole the whole <laughs> 70s alphabet of paraphernalia. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get started on our first movie today. Another diva who cut her teeth on the Broadway stage, Shirley MacLaine, had a true Hollywood beginning to her career, starting out as an understudy slash chorus girl who got her big break when the lead actress had a break of her own in her ankle. And this caught the attention of producer Hal B. Wallace, known for little movies like Casablanca and The Maltese Falcon. She was signed to a contract at Paramount, and the rest of her career is a history of success, including a movie she made in 1977 with another actress we don't talk about nearly enough these days and Bancroft. And hey, why not throw in Baryshnikov for good measure? The Turning Point holds the record for being nominated for the most Oscars. Paired with uh, The Color Purple, 11, and not winning a single one. Anthony, it's a dancer drama sandwiched between impressive dance sequences. Was this one a winner for you? I think
1: so. Like, I was surprised at how. It's a little stage bound to me. Like, it feels like it's written for the stage, and I don't mind that as a film. Like, um, I have a higher tolerance for that than I think a lot of people do, but I really liked it. I was surprised how much. I was enjoying it. I love a juicy monologue for like an aging diva, and there sure is a <laughs> lot of that. There's like, do
2: you enjoy a slap fight? That slap, slap fight, Two I was like, the greatest, <laughs> it's iconic, maybe Incredible. one of my
1: favorite fight scenes in cinema Agreed. history. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks real. Like people, like one of the, my favorite things was when I saw Bridget Jones's Diary, and you watch uh, Hugh Grant and Colin Firth like attacking each other but like they're slapping and sort of like you know doing like the, no. the hesitant thing of like I don't actually want to get hurt but I want to hurt you like she that's how people actually fight slap. yeah exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like yeah that's how two people who had just have all this aggression would go at each other and then start laughing at how stupid and absurd it is like it's it's a beautiful moment
1: she throws her purse mm-hmm. she loses an yes. earring it's <laughs> so good <laughs>
2: it's, I feel like if you lived in New York you would see an old lady fight like that <laughs> regularly um, we're just not New
0: Yorkers yeah.
2: from what the real The (laughs) Housewives of New York
0: has taught me that is just ubiquitous. Like, it happens everywhere. You can walk anywhere. Rockefeller Center on the ice. You're just watching someone go at someone with an ice blade. Like, it's just done. Yeah,
1: and the fight comes out of, like, a real— I like the fight for a lot of reasons. One of them is, like, they are talking about real, exquisitely defined, like— melancholy feelings that are in their life, but they also recognize, like, I've had a good life. Like, neither of them would deny that they've had a good life. But their envy of each other's successes, whether in the family or professionally, are the things that the movie slows down to articulate. Like, um, I think think we're going to be thinking about, like, quote-unquote, women's films when we think about these movies. And, like, the way it's willing to think about just like, well, what does it mean to look back on your life and be like, there are some regrets? Um, and its willingness to pause and think about that was really interesting to me.
0: Well, mm-hmm. let's get into what this movie is actually about. You talk about regrets and things. Anthony, can you walk us a little bit through the plot here? I
1: think so, in as much as there is kind of a yes. plot, right? Like, it's <laughs> um, it's a movie about two women um, based on real people, Isabel yes. Miro Brown and Nora Kay. Highly fictionalized, sort of very, again, like very like brought to the stage kind of energy. But one uh, is a successful ballerina, sort of recognizing that, you know, the footman is at the door, her career is basically over. Uh, And it's been a great career, but she's aging out of her diva status. That's Anne Bancroft's character. And Shirley MacLaine, who plays. A woman who was once her rival um, for all the parts that they wanted in their early days, but who married and has now produced this gaggle of children. Uh, there's only three, but it feels like <laughs> we're there's two. Yeah. Yeah, we're also
0: all stars, yes.
1: Um, and one of them in Oklahoma. Yeah, and one of them has now been selected to sort of, is now the next new ingenue, right? So she is at once replacing Anne Bancroft's character, um, but also sort of realizing all the dreams that her mother never did. Um, And that brings them into each other's orbit because the daughter is now off to New York to learn... Uh, At the foot of Anne Bancroft and the sort of the system she's in. um, And they just get to have fights and cheat on their husbands and all these fun things.
0: (laughs) They also are following the daughter a lot, too, as she's kind of on the other end of the spectrum. She's at the beginning of of her career versus the end of the career. And you see her kind of navigating the same mistakes her mother made, right? Sleeping with dancers in the company, um, going out in the town and being with other people, handling your alcohol and substances. Yeah. (laughs) That, That dancing drunk scene is fantastic.
1: Uh, and the-
2: So is the fact that Mikhail Bernishnikov, like when we say don't have affair, affairs with your fellow dancers, unless they, they <laughs> are like you know. the main sex
1: <laughs> they got that god, ball.
2: like icon <laughs> yes. of the 70s and early 80s. And this is his um, debut film performance. He would go on to make several other films. I think we've talked about White Nights in 1995. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is Bernishnikov, very young, very sexy, very unhinged. Um, I get why she goes down. I think even her mom's like, there's no point in even yeah. talking talking to you. About this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I also like the way she articulates it where she's like
0: dancing is the same as having sex with him but I don't really need to talk to him. Like there is very much like it's just that physical connection hmm. right?
2: Yeah.
1: It's very adult. I mean the scene where she loses her virginity and comes home and and her mom <laughs> is like do you want to talk about it? She's like no it would. I think it would spoil it. Like I haven't never seen a scene like that actually quite with that kind of energy of like She's not regretful about it. She at first seems to have no illusions about it, although it's very clear she's, she's caught feelings later that he does not reciprocate or doesn't understand how to reciprocate, right? He's like, he apologizes and is like, but it wasn't that big a deal, was it? And it's like, he just is this kind of uncontrolled libido character in the film.
2: <laughs> it's very Russian. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like Latin, well, Latvian, <laughs> but yeah.
1: You're so fabulous. And I have weak knees. I like girls, this weakness. You just like girls very much. Is
2: wrong?
0: No. So this is a film, as we said. There's a plot, and this is happening, but it also stops for large swaths of the film to just show you dance sequences that then have like a title over top of them, so you know exactly what it's from. Yeah. How did
2: we feel uh, about this? I'm not a fan. And we're talking about director Herbert Ross, who was a choreographer. He choreographed Funny Girl. He comes from a dance background. And for me, it I enjoyed many aspects of this film, especially the ones that Anthony's talking about with the nuance around complex emotions and parenting and aging um, and sexuality and desire for middle-aged women. Where I am concerned is the ballet part. (laughs) That's not something I expected to be concerned about with a film that is often cited in the top 10 of all ballet films. Um, It felt very tacked on, but I do think looking at the late 70s, ballet was really having a resurgence um, because of celebrities like Baryshnikov. And so I kind of get that that would have been very appealing to audiences in a way that I don't think it's appealing now. Like You don't make a ballet film in the 2020s unless it's a horror film uh, like Black Swan or it's a genre picture. Ballet has kind of lost its footing in terms of (laughs) a marketable theme. But in 77, it was still really, really big. Like, you know, these tickets that people were subscribing to were expensive and they were showing up and not just in, you know, to the film's point, like this is Oklahoma has its own ballet, right? Oklahoma City has its own core. Um, I don't know if that's true today, but that idea of, you could just put ballet performances with text over them saying who the dancers are and who the choreographer is and they're all from the real ballet world. To me, just doesn't work. But then again, it's like, that's okay. If that's the one thing that hasn't aged well in this film, that's fine. And I think it really does make it quite stagey because you just have a camera in the back of a theater it's not move; the camera's not moving at all it's a static camera and i think something with a better cinematographer a better um you know not a better director but just a different director who maybe wasn't so stuck to choreography might have done something more dynamic
1: uh it is interesting to me because both of these films Turning Point and The Turning Point and uh, New York, New York sort of hit the pause button for like these 11 o'clock long sequences. good
2: point.
1: Where it's like, let me, and in both cases, it's like, here's someone who is like a once in a generation, if even that talent, doing the thing they're best at, right? Like watching Liza Minnelli do these amazing broadway-esque numbers it's funny because in both cases i'm like well these are the this is what the person is actually best at even though they're sort of stuck in this movie right and it is like alvin ailey choreography it is like this amazing archive to have but the film really leans into the like artificial pause of it like it is sort of being like featured courtesy of this company and this choreography and it's like it really just yanks you out of any kind of fictional tissue that the, the event is happening in. Um, there would be ways, like, I can imagine a version of both films where these things are folded in more organically into the story. Um, I didn't hate it in either case. And in the case of New York, New York, I was like, oh, thank God, like, what a breath of fresh air. <laughs> little-
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, thank you for taking the foot off the <laughs> gas and just letting me watch her sing.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Well, I think it's it's hard because I'm trying to put myself in the position of audiences for that year. And, like, they know that Anne Bancroft and Shirley MacLaine, while having somewhat of a dance background, are not prima ballerinas, nor have they ever Anne been. Anne Bancroft has no dance experience. The fact that they, they brought her in is wild. It's incredibly clear when you're watching
0: this. Yes. <laughs> she, she holds herself in positions and they shoot around her.
2: Whereas you have the daughter being played by the real-life daughter of this very famous prima ballerina who the film is based on. That which was you know made very explicit in the marketing it was kind of a stunt to be honest she's very good in it and her dancing is incredible Um, it does sort of have to you know really toe this line of like reality and unreality Uh, and so to have something so realistic with those dance kind of recital sequences just further reminds me that we're looking at two actresses that are not dancers where something and I hate to keep up keep up bringing Black Swan, but we could bring up Center Stage also. You know, those are films that cast um, people based on their dancing. Now, Natalie Portman wasn't known as a ballet dancer, but she had like 15 years mm-hmm. of ballet behind her and trained for like a year or something like that for this. It's just a very different mode of making films in the late 70s where you didn't have to have those kinds of... Reality just didn't matter, I think, yeah. in 1977. This is
0: also a movie that I feel like, even if you didn't have Barishnikov, the the center drama is what's actually interesting about it. And I mean, this is a callback to women's films, as we mentioned earlier. And the amount of women and like recognizable uh, actresses that really, really wanted to be in this movie, I think speaks to the lack of roles that were available for women like this in the late 70s. So um, this was confirmed. Everyone's like, it's a rumor. It was confirmed um, by Herbert Ross that uh, Grace Kelly really wanted to be in this and Prince Mm -hmm. Rainier said no. Um, uh, Audrey Hepburn wanted to play the Anne
2: Bancroft role, badly she says it was her 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 biggest regret that she wasn't cast in this film and Hepburn was a dancer she was a trained ballerina so that to me makes sense
1: that's the most heartbreaking one to me like the version of this movie with Audrey Hepburn in that role as not just like as a like it would have bookended her career right like to go from this sort of ingenue to it would have given her a final role right like they're her career kind of peters out, right? Like, mm-hmm. she doesn't have a farewell. And this one is so self-consciously about farewell. It would have been cool to see her do that. It also mm-hmm. would have meant she was opposite Shirley MacLaine again, right? We could have yeah. had Children's
2: Hour oh my again. God.
1: Yeah, that one, that's a Yeah, that's dream
2: casting. Yeah. It's interesting because it does seem like this film would have appealed to actresses of a certain generation who are still, let's be honest, very fit, very athletic. Like there was no reason for them not to be acting. It was really just entirely ageism. Yeah. Um, so I can see how the idea of like, let me show how in my 50s I am as, you know, spry and light on my toes as I was at 19. And Grace Kelly was still very athletic as well, and could have proven that. Like it, it is. I see the appeal of this role because there was just nothing for this generation mm-hmm. of actresses. Um, it's really and Shirley MacLaine's career goes into a kind of a different. Like she's she goes from basically being a like a mom in her early 40s to an old lady yeah. in for three years. <laughs> like it's so crazy. We were talking last night. I was talking with Brendan, my partner. And we're talking about a roller coaster, which you guys uh, talked about in the previous episode. And you see this family and it's like the two parents are clearly in their 60s, but they have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. Like that's what they did in the 70s, the, the mom from Jaws who loses a little boy. Don't tell me she's not 71. How (laughs) does she have an eight-year-old? If you were a mother, you had to be in your 60s or 70s, even if you had a toddler. There's just this gap in how women were cast and the pervasive ageism, which completely— Exists well, into today's um world but not as bad and
1: bancroft is like six years older than dustin hoffman in the graduate right is that correct
0: yeah. Cre-
2: like, that's right yes
0: like, that's, that's yes, great. yes yes great point that should have been what i led with <laughs>
2: like, <laughs> point anthony like, my thing is i'm like
0: I, I don't understand why we don't talk about Anne bancroft more like the number of iconic roles she played i mean mrs robinson is something else i think maybe it's because she's shrouded
2: by the miracle worker which is not mm-hmm. a great movie mm. <laughs> but it's one of those things. she's often just kind of named as like mel brooks's wife yeah and one of her very last roles is on Curb Your Enthusiasm with him and it's I I really encourage anyone to watch the season dedicated to Larry David being on The Producers. Uh, Anne Bancroft gets kind of the final say of that whole season, and then I believe she passed away very, very shortly after filming that. Um, But yeah, she's just, you know, I think sometimes that era of diva, if they're married to a super producer, like a super icon in Hollywood, as Mel Brooks was and is, Mm -hmm. that can be very detrimental as well. I think about
1: her uh, Miss Havisham a lot in Great Expectations. Mm. Yeah. Yes. yeah, that's Speaking of a great parts point. that's like, you've aged out and that's it, right? Like, yeah. like <laughs> Now you're Havisham. You're Havisham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: God. I could be Havisham at this age Pretty now. much, yeah.
1: That character's <sighs> like 27 in the book. You're like, wait a minute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> 27, yeah. Well, like, What happened to the women's pictures, Alicia? What's weird is they made money. Like,
2: this made a lot of money. Tons. And, and prestigious, obviously. Multiple Oscar nominations, even though it didn't win. Yeah, but when you, even you just to name an example from 1991, like something like Thelma and Louis Louise, you know, no producer wanted to make it because no one's going to—they felt no one would go to see a film with two— ladies, two bitches, like, helming it. I think just people didn't want to make women's pictures. You do get in the 80s, very shortly after this, something like 9 to 5 and Working Girl. And those are those feel different to me. I don't think of them as women pictures. And they're also comedies. But the idea of having a hard drama with two female leads and no storyline where, you know, they, there's a love interest, we get it in this film with Through the Daughter and Barishnikov. it just, execs had no interest. Because they're all men. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think maybe TV starts absorbing a lot of that energy, right?
2: Like designing women and stuff like that. Yeah, like
1: it's cheaper to make that way. Yeah, but as as tent poles become, as you have to get your four quadrant hits, pictures like this start to disappear. I was reading in the Wikipedia, there's a whole episode of that 70s show about how he doesn't want to go see this movie with his girlfriend, right? Like
2: that's, Yeah. yeah.
1: It's a hard movie to market to larger audiences and yet it produced this entire like ballerina sub craze that consumes the 80s, right?
0: Well, on top of that, then they they moved over into, there's an episode of Happy Days that Leslie Brown appears in where she's the (laughs) Fonz's girlfriend and teaches him how to dance. There is a clip of it online. You can see it. But I mean, that's just such a wild idea to me. Like the Fonz dancing in ballet. I mean, I love Henry Winkler, but man,
2: that's wild.
1: Well, he did jump a shark once, so.
2: He did. I was just going to (laughs) say. Second, second to him jumping a shark. (laughs) All right, well, let's
0: get into a bit of the the real life stuff here. So Herbert Ross. Also, this is a huge year for him because he's nominated for both this and the Goodbye Girl for Best Director. I love the idea that he also wanted to make this movie for his wife, who we mentioned earlier was Nora Kay. She was a prima ballerina. And and her relationship with uh, her friend slash frenemy, Isabel Miro Brown, whose daughter is Leslie Brown, they wanted this to capture what it was really like to be backstage and to watch kind of the machinations of a ballet company. And I think you see a little bit of that. I love the the woman who runs the theater company. She is, or the, the ballet company. She is like such a perfect, she's such yeah. a shark and such a like, all right, who, who's going to give us some money now these people are these people are gonna donate to us and I think you do get a bit of this that you hadn't seen in anything else before do you guys really feel like this captures that like backstage energy do you feel like you know more about how
2: this would work in the in the 70s um you know there's we know that dancing is physically destructive to your body you do get a scene with the daughter her feet I was impressed with this film showing a Mm -hmm. dancer's Foot, which is pustules and open sores and bleeding, like that's reality. You don't see that in the red shoes. You don't see that in previous ballet films. You definitely don't see that in Beatrix Potter's uh, ballet film we talked about earlier <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> um, but, you know, in terms of, I expect a little bit more of a film that's dedicated to ballet today to discuss body dysmorphia, eating disorders, all of the things that we know just open. Um, open book with this sport, mm-hmm. this this level of athleticism and this film really <laughs> dances around <laughs> all of that. It's more about the sexual intrigue and although, Anthony, what did you think about like the, because there's um, the husband's played by Tom Skerritt right. and there is implications that he was bisexual or perceived as as gay in the use of these two peoples and that's why she married him and had a baby to prove that he wasn't. And then he says that's kind of interesting. That's true, right? (laughs) That
0: is, Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, And that actually in a number of uh, interviews, Herbert Ross defends that and he said he had to push back against the studio because the studio wanted that plot plot line completely out and he was like, this is a really important part of ballet. You do have a lot of people who are bisexual, they're homosexual and this is an important part of discussing these sort of gender politics.
1: Yeah, and it's funny, like we're talking about the sort of unimpeded sexuality of Barishnikov, and it's like but that's really the only reason he gets to be what he was is like because you get to pen at the end and he's straight right like yeah he kind of gets to like to be a straight ba- ballet dancer <laughs> straight male ballet dancer is like an unusual thing to be and I like that the movie admits that quite quite readily yeah. right like it does have that great character Arnold the choreographer that's like He's like this pitchy, uh, pissy, like bitchy choreographer who's like, no emotions, right? Like, and, like, it, and it's Just e- dance, do the counts. <laughs> but it's easy to see how a character like that emerges, right? Like it is such a suppressed aspect of their lives that this like um almost kind of campy dandy is now creating this piece about, like, you can't have any passion show. It's, like, an interesting theme in this piece. What I like about this film and New York, New York is that like, you see how much these artists suffer for their art, even when the art is to an audience of, like, a bunch of people who don't get it, right? Like, one of the things I like about this movie is how often they're like, the audience doesn't even know how bad we are when we're bad because they don't understand mm-hmm. dance enough to get it, right? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I I thought it was amazing that like again we're in a pre-AIDS crisis film where they the film is obviously trying to think about queer sexuality and is obviously not getting as much room to do that as it wants to. Yeah, it's it's a it's a complicated little little beast of it. I don't know what and I don't want to derail the film either because like if I start paying attention to Tom Skerritt, I'm going to lose the Shirley MacLaine and Bancroft thing, right?
0: Mm-hmm. No, allegedly that is was part of the real argument is that she did marry someone who the rumor was gay and got pregnant be, in order to prove that mm-hmm. they were not gay and that was part of the regret. They did end up in the actual what actually happened in the real in real life is they did end up getting divorced and she did move back to New York and and start choreo- choreographing again choreographing um, <laughs> that that one. That's, that's how much we know. About <laughs> <laughs> no, no, my dance knowledge is great. My English, <laughs> but, uh. um, but yeah, apparently that actually. Actually happen, and that's why they, they really are trying to be as true to life as possible. And even I mean, the the casting of the daughter was completely accidental. She just happened to be the best person for this role. Um, originally, they wanted uh, Gelsey Kirkland, who was one of the biggest ballerinas at the time. Uh, and the announcement at the time said she would not be able to take it because she uh, was too busy uh, prepping the next season. Uh, but of course, we now know that she was suffering from severe substance abuse and was not in any position to be able to continue working unfortunately. She was also Baryshnikov's partner at the time. Yeah, so is Liza Minnelli. Yes, exactly. <laughs> who, who wasn't? <laughs> <laughs> when you look like Baryshnikov, you can get whatever you want. Um, this is also Herbert Ross's uh, initial ballet movie, but of course he would make Dancers and Nijinsky, and he wanted to make Nijinsky specifically
2: before Ken Russell could get his hands into it. <laughs> Everyone was trying. Yeah, no one liked Ken Russell in the late 70s. We've definitely talked about that.
1: <laughs> I would have loved to see that movie. Um, Ken Russell's oh, did, too. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Vershnikov was nominated for Best Supporting
0: Oscar for this. Does he deserve that that nomination?
1: No, <laughs> no.
2: <laughs>
1: Oof, uh, he's fine. He's Oof.
2: maybe give him the Golden Globe, but not the Oscar.
1: <laughs> he's got a pair of Golden Globe. Anyway, never mind. Uh- <laughs> uh, he's great. He's a great dancer in it. He's well, magnetic, but he is. I mean, he's he's floating by, like on that, right? Like it's not a. It also doesn't have a lot of performance to do. He has to look beautiful, and he does look beautiful. And I understand wanting to put him on the stage at the Oscars, but. Come on,
0: no. So as we mentioned, this won no Oscars for the 11 it was nominated for. Why do we think that is? Is it just, does it just not measure up? Or was it like we recognize this is something and that we should, but we just didn't?
1: There's honestly no performance or there's nothing in this that I think is like best of. It's interesting. I'm an Mm -hmm. old Marxist and it is interesting. Like the material reality is this is a hard movie to watch now because it's not in print. Like... I yeah. the, the movie yeah. the copy I rented is so beat up it skips um it is a movie that shows kind
0: of, someone loved it so that's sure good.
1: but it's
2: or used it as a coaster <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like it's been memory holed in a weird way it does sound like Oscar bait that doesn't quite get there I think like I don't know I loved it it's
2: very um sorry I didn't mean to cut you off but it, that seems to be Herbert Ross's thing. Like, you look at the films he made, and they feature huge stars. Look at something like California Suite, and we've talked about that in the first season of the podcast. His, he's really forgotten, mm-hmm. I would say, as a director who had so many Academy Award nominations, who worked with the biggest stars of the— well, late 60s, 70s, throughout the 80s. This is the director of Steel Magnolias. Oh, wow. Um, right. And that was of kind of his last, like his last hurrah. Um he did, uh, not flash dance. the other one, help me, Kevin Bacon. Uh, footloose. Footloose, yeah. Footloose. yeah. <laughs> footloose. I was dancing on screen, which no one can see. You yeah, know this one. if <laughs> that would. It
1: uh, was flawless. Um, it was exactly yeah.
0: the dance. I, I, I saw this is why I'm able to critique
1: ballet down. films.
2: Uh, his career is completely... Like just not discussed as tour, as as a not that I believe in a tourism, but his he doesn't I think his filmography doesn't come together cohesively, and people. Should look at him because it's very cohesive in terms mm-hmm. of women's pictures like *Still Magnolias*, like this dance, mm-hmm. like *Footloose*, like this um, *Owl and the Pussycat*. He directed like these. He's just just completely disregarded. It's really bizarre, and I think the awards kind of disregarded him too.
1: Is there some reason? Like, is there like a material? Like, why is this movie so hard to watch? Like, get a copy of like.
2: There's a lot of films in the late seventies, and I would even say, and we'll talk about it in a minute, *New York, New York* was hard to watch until recently mm-hmm. when the studio restored. Um, the late 70s is this difficult time where if you had a physical film print, like on 35, it was the height of the era of those prints turning pink right. and red because um, they hadn't invented low fade film stock yet. So often the archives will just have these pink prints and they don't want to spend the money on rescanning the negative mm-hmm. or making a new inner negative. And so these films just sort of don't get restored um, or they're restored from old materials. Uh, Yeah, anytime I'm programming something from the late 70s, early 80s, um, and this unfortunately did happen to me recently with Mahogany, I have major concerns Mm -hmm. and (laughs) the chances of finding, unless it's a huge film, by someone like Martin Scorsese uh, and even then that could be difficult Um, it's really just it's a material thing and also I think the studios don't think people are interested in the 70s and the early 80s. It's
1: funny that you mentioned that because I was just watching an interview about New York, New York a from Scorsese and he was talking about like Mm. wanting to make one of these old Technicolor musicals which is what New York, New York wants Mm -hmm. to do and it's like and the studios just didn't have the means to do that anymore because the old projectors were gone and there were all these new Eastman things that he already knew were turning magenta, right? Like,
2: yeah, um, And so then he makes a scene that's entirely bathed in red so that when you watch a magenta print <laughs> of New York, New York, you don't actually know that anything's wrong. Because, <laughs> all right.
0: Yeah. That is the perfect transition point for us to move to New York, New York, because obviously we're chomping at the bit to get to this wild, wild movie. Of course, it's coming up after the break. Oh. Hey, Cam. Uh, Caveat before we start. Uh, I appear in some Hollywood Speed original content and you are one of the writers and producers of a lot of that content and you appear in them as well. Uh, Shows like A to Z and the Year in Film TV series. But I'm really proud of being a part of them because I feel that, like this podcast, uh, knowing more about the context of the movies we love really enriches the enjoyment of those movies.
1: I think it's also a a great reminder that like, film is such an unusual medium where so many artists are involved. I think you're somebody who loves to dig into Uh, Producers uh, and like how they affect things. You know, a producer was obsessed with an actor, and that's why they're in X or Y.
0: How one director made a pillow fort to get away from his producer when he was throwing tantrums.
1: Sure, Uh, John Peters really wanted to see a giant mechanical spider on screen. These are all like important points (laughs) of film history that uh, that get lost because, frankly, they're not the front facing people.
0: Exactly, and I think all of the Hollywood Suite original content brings these stories that a lot of people haven't heard. To the forefront. And not only are they going to learn about the movies they already love, they'll probably find a bunch of new favorites. And they'll be guided by reliable film experts and thorough, well curated interviews and behind the scenes footage. And you can find out more about Hollywood Suite original programming at hollywoodsuite.ca. And now, back to the show. Being the daughter of another iconic diva, Liza Minnelli had a lot to live up to. Although she was finding much success on Broadway, she was a Tony winner by age 19. However, when it came time for her to play her most iconic role, Sally Bowles, Broadway passed her over for the title role, but picked her up in 1972 to give her an Oscar for the role in the film version, something her mother never actually achieved. Now, for the next five years, she would star in movies, but nothing really gave her the show vehicle the cabaret was for her particular talents. That is, until 1977, when a filmmaker, fresh off a hit called Taxi Driver, cast her in a role that would pair her with composers Candor and Ebb, give her a signature song, and a meaty role to chew on. Could she make it here with New York, New York for another iconic role? Or would it be a debacle that would almost kill Scorsese? Alicia... (laughs) How do you have feelings?
2: (laughs) Well, I think Scorsese is more than capable of killing himself at this point in his life. I don't think the film should be blamed, (laughs) although maybe it was an exacerbating circumstance. Yeah, this film, I'm excited to talk about it because I have grappled with this film for years. uh, Because it is, like many of the films, I think think back to our Bogdanovich uh, episode where I should love this. Uh, it's up my alley. It's written for me. And then I have this almost um, vomitous, nauseous <laughs> reaction to it. Anthony, um, if I but- may say, your your partner walked out. Yes, he
1: did. He was like, I can't. I hate this man yeah. so much. Like, it is—
2: Brendan Brendan refused to watch it again with me. He was like, no,
1: I'm not doing it. It is— it is a—I do think it's an interesting work of art, but it produces an emotion that I feel like I have never had and have never had for such a sustained period watching a movie of just— Two hours and 43 minutes. <laughs> yeah, just Down the, yeah.
0: from the original four-hour cut. Yeah,
1: And, like, he—I mean, De Niro's character is truly one of the most loathsome characters I think I've mm-hmm. ever seen in a film.
2: Worse than Travis Bickle. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. An, uh, There's empathy for Travis Bickle, yeah. for
1: sure. Well, that's the other thing is, like, it is really hard to take the film's emotional temperature about whether or not I'm supposed to like this character or not, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, he is so—and then it becomes an endurance of, like, how do I feel about watching this woman live with this man who is destroying her life? Like, it really is—
2: Emotionally abusing her, physically abusing her, abandoning her in the uh, delivery room. She's having an at-risk pregnancy. Like, just things that you're, like— and this is who Scorsese saw as his, like, mouthpiece, as his doppelganger, based on what was going on in his real life. And you're just like, W-w-w-. but, uh, yeah, wow. Yeah. Like,
1: <laughs> now, he blows his do. nose on her her blanket as she's in the delivery room. Like, it could be crazy. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Maybe De Niro did—or, sorry, not De Niro. Maybe um, Scorsese did that. I don't know, but it— if there's one saving grace to this film, and it's a big saving grace, it's that Liza, who was equally drugged up and partying and completely is her usual effervescent, incredibly empathetic, very nuanced performance. She's just giving her all. Mm-hmm. And it's, um you know, she carries the film in a really big way. And I think that's why it's really hurtful when we see her, you know, is there, is there like, is he slap her? No, but he will grab her wrist really hard when she's eight months pregnant in front of their coworkers. Like things that are just, today are, you know, textbook. This is someone who's going to start physically, like this woman's going to end up in the ER mm-hmm. as well as her children. Uh, all of that's playing out for two hours and 43 minutes of how— Men, toxic men who are morbidly jealous, build up a repertoire to um, full-on physical abuse or murder, I would say. Uh It's just—and so there's this building pressure. But it's supposed to be, you know, this homage to these MGM musicals of the 1940s for which Liza Minnelli's mother was queen. And we see this with Bogdanovich in the 70s as well with that long-lost love but that's a comedy, and it's funny. Mm. And even if it, that musical doesn't work, trying to resurrect Lubitsch, the reason this doesn't work for me is there is not an ounce of humor in it. Mm. You are There are jokes, and they are funny on paper, but the... And it's, it's to the credit of the actors. The way it is performed is so disturbing and so gut-wrenching that you cannot laugh. You want to cry. There is also
0: no paper. This is almost entirely an improvised <laughs> film, uh, which is also to a detriment, I think.
1: I had the experience of, like— Okay, I, and I, I understand, like, this is the project of the work, right? It wants to sort of <laughs> deconstruct the old MGM musical experience, right? But, like— um, there was this weird sensation of like, I felt like I was being served like a deconstructed dessert and I was like, I want to have the constructed version. You
0: know? yeah, can I have <laughs> the apple pie? Not just
2: like a wafer yeah. and like a small baked apple. Okay, yeah. Anthony, yeah. you need to go to Dairy Queen and stop going to these fancy restaurants that are serving foams <laughs> and things actually, like
0: that.
1: There's this clip of Jamie Oliver teaching kids how disgusting chicken nuggets are and how it's like, Oh, scraped yeah. up chicken parts. <laughs> and then at the end the kids are like, Can we have the chicken nuggets? And it's like, <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel that's like you and
2: New York, New I York. feel like a rube,
1: right? But it's like that's that's yeah. the experience of like, well, okay, you're making me endure Watching, I agree with you. She is incredibly effervescent and amazing in this, but that almost exacerbates the experience of like this poor woman stepped in shit at some point in her life, and that shit has been dragging through her career for like the twenty years that this movie seems to take. <laughs> like he, I counted, and she says no to him sixteen times in that first scene. Yep. Yeah. No what?
0: No. No.
2: No. 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 You don't understand. No. No. Give me a number. Give, give me a number. Just you got a pencil or no. something. Give me. All right, I have a photographic memory. Just give me your number and I'll remember. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Can I meet you in Central Park? I'm
1: serious. I know. No. And he just persists and will not go away. And then a decade of her life is, like, lost. And having been in um, both, like, professionally jealous relationships and also, like, abusive relationships, it was really quite, like... It really gets at that experience of like, I'm in love with this person, but it is, I am drowning in this. <sighs> and yet, it, there is no relief in it until we get the 20 minutes of her just singing. And like, here is the fantasy this movie is denying us, right?
0: Now, can you imagine that Happy Endings isn't in the original
2: theatrical cut? Whew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Gorgeous, gorgeous. I can, gown. because
2: this was a huge <laughs> flop and the critics were really harsh. Fairly harsh, um, yeah. I just, you know, like you, Anthony. I think as as I watch this, as I age, I probably first saw it in my twenties and didn't think much about mm-hmm. it. But going through your own shit in relationships, like watching this was horrific, because I think different versions of me in the past have watched this and not necessarily seen very clearly what's happening. And now watching it, you get this very full on sense of how these relationships devolve. Um, it's supposed to be about professional jealousy. These are two very talented artists. Jimmy Doyle, played by Robert De Niro, is a saxophone player. And Liza Minnelli is coming off of a USO tour. This film opens on VJ Day, the day that Victory Over Japan was declared in 45. She's coming off of USO. She's like a pop singer. Um, She kind of, you know, leads these kind of big bands. And they, they come together professionally. And it's supposed to be about the professional jealousy. But from... The very first scene, like you're describing, Anthony, um, as well as you, Becky, where she says sixteen times no to his maniacal pursuit of her. It to me isn't about professional jealousy; it's about owning a woman, yeah. possessing her. Um, if he sees another man looking at her, he will break something. Right. That happens multiple times. He puts her at risk when she's pregnant. Um, we talked about, you know, that great slap scene in the turning point best fight scene ever watching this fight Oof. scene which occurs in a car while Robert De Niro's is driving and Liza Minnelli's in the back seat she's eight months pregnant Minnelli and Scorsese somehow both end up in the ER after yeah. this scene it felt so real and so hurtful like it felt like the punches are landing and not I don't mean physical literal punches but the punches of this film are landing really hard and it's something like Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and to some extent, Alice doesn't live here anymore. That is to Scorsese's credit. And in this film, because it's coming from a man who is deeply troubled in his marriage, deeply troubled in his health, and his mental health, and his addiction, um, the punches are landing hard because. We're, we're we're basically, you know, through the eye of the storm with someone going
0: through this. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, we should talk about rough. the actual events that were kind of going on with Scorsese at this time. And normally we don't get into the gossipy stuff, but like the game in Michael Douglas, who discusses going through that movie and the twists and turns as very similar to his extremely complicated divorce, and he was utilizing it. So you need to know the details here. Um, the same thing is happening here where he was married to uh, Julia Cameron, who was pregnant at the time with uh, his daughter, who is also a filmmaker. Um, she Dominica. Was, yeah. Yes. She was also uh, a, a severe, severe alcoholic and was showing up to set because Scorsese was cheating on her with Liza Minnelli and many other women mm-hmm. and was just mm-hmm. basically ruining takes, uh, screaming about things. Uh, she has since been in recovery and is the author of The Artist's Way, which inspired her and has inspired many other people. I know they're all big fans of that. Um, but he, in order to cope with um, his career as well as the pressures of Taxi Driver was such an enormous success. He was so terrified that his next film was going to be an abject failure. Um, And unfortunately, he got pulled into extreme cocaine addiction um, and he uh, ended up having a seizure, ended up in the hospital. And the only thing that really kind of saved him was De Niro was like, we're going to make Raging Bull and I need you to survive so we can make this film. It was just an extremely challenging part of his life where uh, he was really reckoning with what it is to be an artist, what it is to be a husband, what it is to work at this level and this scale. Uh, And it's I think all of that pain is on film and it's (laughs) extremely. Extremely raw and very hard to watch. Like, sometimes when people are making personal art, you need them to have a decade before they can talk about it. Otherwise, you're like, "Ooh, electric, yeah. can't touch. Uh,
2: this feels like a film that is so turbulent because he's in the middle of it. He, um, he ran into Liza Minnelli and her husband. Uh, she was married to um, Jack Haley Jr., Um, And the father, Jack Haley, who is, of course, the tin man from Wizard of Oz, is in this film. (laughs) It's his last role. There's a nice little family connection there. Her marriage is on the rocks to Jack Haley Jr. They're walking down a street in New York. Of course, as he sees them, I think jumps out of a cab. He starts screaming at her. Meanwhile, Jack doesn't know she's having an affair with Scorsese. He starts screaming at her because she is sleeping with Berishnikov and he's just found out. I know we are supposed to get gossipy, her but yes. it's just like, oh my God. Like in front of her husband, like berating her for cheating on him while she's cheating. Just this level of disaster. And yet in Liza's performance, I will say she's she's admittedly as strung out. Mm-hmm. As he is. She will eventually check herself into rehab um, a few years later. She never inflicts the kind of pain on the audience that Scorsese does. Like, she is able to... Just stand yeah. and deliver in this way. That um, I, I just love her so much. Like I, I watch that Muppet Show episode all the time. <laughs> she's just she's had a rough life. Yeah. Like who has had a rougher life at this yeah. point? Looking at this with what she went through with her mother, with drug addiction, with her marriages, with um, losing a baby, and just she just just she just gets into your heart. Yeah. She gets into your heart so much.
1: There's this thing she does. I mean, as you were saying, like almost the entire movie is improv,ed which kind of makes the experience even harder because, like, you're watching these characters literally try to find meaning at all in what they're talking about. Like, it's a very jarring effect when you come from something as stagey as the turning point, right? Where, like, every line of dialogue is almost too crisp, right? Everything is almost too exact. Characters understand themselves almost too well. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas here you're constantly watching these two actors sort of struggle to make meaning of the scene, um, but this awful thing, and I don't know how conscious a choice it is, but every time he apologizes, she says, I'm sorry, too. And it drives yeah. me crazy because, yeah. like, this poor oh, woman yeah. is just stuck. It reminded me, it felt to me like the experience of watching Anne Hathaway and James Franco host the Oscars. where there's oh, like, yes. <laughs> <You know?
2: laughs>
1: a, d- a definitive hostage situation. Yes. Yes. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. um, this, yeah. like, professional, like, this woman who understands exactly, like, is all the better for understanding that the artifice is the only thing holding this thing together um, over and against this kind of very baggy naturalist. Like there's a way to make this movie. I can think of versions of this movie that exist. Like Umbrellas of Shorborg is also a movie mm. that sort of, sort of lifts this kind of Fovist musical artifice and yet becomes about the way that that's not the way the real world works. Right. Like to yeah. me, that is the better version of what this is struggling to do, I don't think it might be an evil film, but it's like it's technically amazingly made. You know, like they're
2: agreed, <laughs> and it, it might be evil, but it's not unrealistic. Right, exactly. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, like, as, despite this being improvised, watching the way he talks to her, watching the way that she has to apologize—that's a great point. Watching the way. Um, that is all just textbook. Like it doesn't matter. This was made in '77. That could be 2023. Like it is textbook abuse, mm-hmm. and it's how abuse has slipped under the table. And we don't, unless it's like someone has a black eye, we don't think of it for some reason as you know spousal abuse. But it is. It is. I, I encourage everyone. I hate saying this to watch this because I think actually Scorsese is incredibly successful at what he set out to do. Just not the idea of resurrecting the musical from the 1940s. Every director's tried to do it. Spielberg failed. Bogdanovich failed. Scorsese failed. Demi is the one who did it beautifully <laughs> in the sixties and early seventies. And dare I bring up donkey skin? Oh my time god! On one this more. Podcast. <laughs> more <we> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that in Anthony. You might not be aware that donkey skin comes up on a regular basis. My favorite,
1: one of my favorite movies. My f- top five, oh, five favorite too. movies. Yeah, absolutely. there's something. All of it. I think you have to. You have to come from his biography to understand what's important about. That fantasy the beauty of that fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Um like there is something and this movie is really trying to get there. It really is. Like
0: but he is um, something like that has to come from a place of love, and there is no love in that <laughs> in that man at that time. There is only rage and pain. And so you can't do that at the same time. Like we mentioned earlier, Happy Endings has to be there because it's the
2: only breath of fresh air, but it also simultaneously makes the movie sadder. Like, mm-hmm. it's really wild. I do think the ending of this, and I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, is perfect. Yes. yes. Um Yeah, and I can't imagine knowing how they wanted a happier ending. That George Lucas demanded that he—he's like, it's gonna be a flop if you don't make sure they end
0: up together. It's like, oh boy.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine how much more angry I probably would have thrown. Oh yeah, like the remote (laughs) control through, like the fire sticks, and he threw the TV um, just in revolt. It is—it's just such a marvel. This film and. You know, Scorsese does talk about it, and he talks about it very frankly and very honestly. Um, And it did get a, you know, a big kind of restoration recently. So I think we're going to hear more and more about New York, New York, as Scorsese's reputation just continues to be solidified as, like, you know, very important icon, um, film bro, God. Uh, I just don't know how you make—I don't know how you make sense of this film. I don't know how you— celebrate it does that make sense a hundred percent I mean I think it's it's not
0: setting out what it's supposed to do like what it intended to do but I think it comes at something else as you said possibly one of the most definitive depictions of what an abusive relationship looks like on film
2: um but not knowing it's about a film about that exactly that's where Um, I'm just like oh yeah because it's
0: just him processing his feelings which of obviously this is extremely toxic but it's also it (laughs) It was made by him, but it also wasn't made by him. Scorsese's movies are often made in the edit. And so, like, you look at Selma <laughs> Schoonmaker right? And she mm-hmm. made those movies, that they look like that because of that. The editor passed away mm-hmm. at the very beginning of New York, New York, and he stole Marsha Lucas uh, from Star Wars to come finish his movie for him. And the only reason this movie makes any sense and has any sort of continuity is because it was edited by Marsha Lucas into continuity and sense. And potentially yeah. you have something someone who is sober, who is a woman, who is editing all of this together, makes you wonder, okay, are we getting that point of view too? It's
2: a great point. And, you know, Marsha Lucas deserves a lot of credit for a lot of things she's not given credit for, including making Star Wars a coherent film. Uh (laughs) She's really a powerhouse in 1977 and no one knew her name, but um, yeah, that's a really good point. I I knew the the editor had died. I didn't realize it was so early in post-production. Yeah. Wow. It, uh... Man.
1: I I take I think the point you made earlier about how this is a movie made by a person who's probably too close to the emotions to understand the movie they're making is true. Like I do think I do think later Scorsese gets much more of a control over this kind of And this is a theme that obsesses, actually, a lot of the rest of his movies, is like, well, am I a bad person, right? Like, my favorite Mm -hmm. Scorsese is probably Silence, actually, where it's like, Uh is it possible to come back from sort of this complete moral and ethical lapse is a question he Mm -hmm. thinks about a lot. And this movie is kind of the lapse happening in front of you in real time, you know? Like, it is... Like, oh, wait, I'm a bad person is
2: sort of happening in front of you. It's an essential film to understanding Raging Bull, mm-hmm. which I am a huge fan of. It's an ugly, brutal film, just like this one. More so even, of course, because it's subject matter. Yet it's the direct follow-up to this film. It is, again, Robert De Niro. And, of course, that character is physically abusive. That is a film where you see spouses with black eyes. But he figured it out, Mm -hmm. just like you're saying, Anthony. He came out of the other end and survived and figured out how to have a lamentable monster as the central figure of a film, um, but make it watchable and make it never that, you know, there's a confusion as to whether we're supposed to celebrate him or not. Mm
0: Because the other thing that's conflicting is, like, Robert De Niro, for all that he is, he's America's grandpa. You know, <laughs> like, we—there is inherent likability about De Niro that makes him—and Electric that makes him watchable. And so when you have him in this role—and, I mean, he's incredibly young, but you're you're looking at him in a whole new way. Because he's unlikable in many of his roles, but this is just reprehensible.
1: And he really captures that- it. Like, he, yeah. he yeah. understands— He understands the sort of the smallness of being professionally envious of somebody, right? Like, now that I think about it, both of these actors had gay dads and were artists. (laughs) It's like, there is is a kind of, um, he understands it close up in a way that I found interesting. This film is incredibly minutely observed in that sort of way. Um, and yet there is no pressure valve for it. We just sort of cook in it for three hours. Um, It's it's an endurance. It really is.
0: Now, when New York, New York is sung, of course, the the title song, this this was not a hit. This wasn't even nominated for an Oscar at that time. Uh, You Light Up My Life won that year for the best song Oscar. But then Sinatra would record it two years later and it would become the mega hit that it now is and the iconic song that it now is. But what do you think people felt when they sat down and they saw this song, which is... It sounds celebratory, like so much candor and ebb sounds celebratory. And then you listen to the lyrics and you're like, oh, shit. And she sings the shit out of that mm-hmm. song. But it's not mm-hmm. like it's even it's an old Broadway standard. It's something people were going into that they'd never heard before.
1: It's odd. It feels like something wrenched out of time. It really does feel like a, yeah. a song that is yeah. 50 years older than it is.
2: I thought it was. Yeah. I'm, I'm an idiot. I honestly had to look it up. I was like, no, New York, New York's from the 30s. You know, it was in some sort of Busby Berkeley film. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. And then you hear
1: Frank Sinatra sing it, but it's like he sang it after this. It's like.
2: In 1980. I would have yeah. assumed he sang it in the yeah. 50s. Like, yeah. I, just baffling. I have
1: the same. Um, Don't Look Now is written by Daphne du Maurier, but it's written like a year before mm-hmm. that movie comes out. Like, I think of that as being mm-hmm. from the 40s. Um, yeah. yeah. It's funny because like the movie we have, the other series of movies, really, we haven't talked about that this feels very much in dialogue with is a star is born, right? like
0: Yes, um, yes, 100%.
1: All of the yeah. versions, including the new version, right? Where it is mm. almost in many ways a better telling of this story of like yeah. uh, a woman, an incredibly talented woman who gets attached to this dangerously deranged person, right? But they all kind of have to have this 11 o'clock number where the woman sings this new iconic song, right? And, and it is that, but it is also very much about like the complete... Uh, risk of being an artist, right? Like, it might happen or it might not. And that's what the song New York, New York ends up being about in a weird way. I don't see what the text keeps insisting, which is that this is somehow the song of their relationship. Like, right? Like, somehow (laughs) it's supposed to be about that. No,
0: because it is the song of the movie if you believe that the song is about professional, or you believe the movie is about professional jealousy. Right,
1: right, yeah.
0: Which I don't, which it's not.
1: No, it is about,
0: No, that's why And the World Goes Round is actually the song of the movie, but it's just not as catchy.
1: Yeah, which Minnelli says is her favorite song, which... Because she understands what this movie's about, right?
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because she, was experiencing, she herself talks about, she's like, I felt so off my feet this whole time, not only because she was strung out, she's like, I don't work like this. You give me a script, mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. the script, and mm-hmm. the, here's like a bunch of wackos throwing stuff at her, and she's reacting as hard as she can. And I think that also gives you that sense of fear is she is so on her back foot the whole time, and like, De Niro's a powerhouse, right? Like, he's just coming at her the whole time, which is what is happening in this movie. And it gives you that real feel that she is does not feel safe because she's not safe. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That scene of know. them getting married is really Ugh. rough. Ugh. Where it's like, this is my wedding. Like he thinks and she
0: want, and you see
2: her want he's out, screaming at her, threatening like
1: suicide. It's, um, yeah, Oof.
2: yeah. It's a it's real, real upper, real romantic film. comedy. This <laughs>
0: <film>. <laughs> but I think it is. It is easily. Uh, the, as I mentioned earlier, Manelli was coming off a string of massive flops. Like Cabaret was a huge high and then nothing. And then one of yeah. the reasons why, not just because this is an extremely difficult movie to watch, one of the reasons this movie failed as hard as it did is it was literally released opposite Star Wars that same weekend. Um, so that is a big part of it, is that people were like, can I go watch something happy in a space opera? Or should I go watch, you know, this, this pain? And then the word of mouth starts and then it just all sorts of, and also the initial edit was butchered by the studios. Um, the, the re-edit didn't come out that included all the lost stuff for a while. Uh, United Artists banked a bunch of money on this and only made the money back because they happened to uh, get part of the proceeds of Rocky. They made they didn't go bankrupt because of Rocky. This film almost completely tanked them at one of many times in uh, United Artists' history. Um, but like there just there was so much hope and expectation in this film, and then it just in the toxic train that it was took basically everything out what a metaphor
2: for the decade that was to come yeah (laughs) politics (laughs) and an epidemic and yeah it really is showing that you can make these films in the late 70s and early 80s that are talking about the most hopeful period in America's history which was right after you know the Allies won the war and it's all bullshit (laughs) it's just all (laughs) rose-colored glasses and yeah yeah. But it wants
1: so much to be about that this movie.
2: It does, but, but he he wasn't in a place he could make that. Yeah. And the audience wasn't in a pl- the audience wasn't in a place to accept that. Star Wars is so phenomenal. I'm not going to s- try to explain why Star Wars was phenomenal. There's a lot of reasons, but the fantasy aspect of it, the escape, the just familiar enough to our real world and relationships yet distant enough that it's not beating you over the head, you know, that appealed to everyone beyond science fiction fans, beyond adolescence, you know, beyond the target audience that it was made for, which was like 13-year-old boys. It was universal. This film is trying to be universal, and yet in doing that becomes very Prescriptive,
0: but I also think we're entering a time. We've talked about this in the first episode. We're going to talk about this for the duration of 1977 because it's such a fascinating turning point year. Um, but the number two at the box office was Smokey and the Bandit, which is also completely different from anything that had come out. And it's a bunch of people having fun and crashing cars. Like this it's is a what great people dog want. In a great dog. I, I want. I want. I, I want Sally Field to win a uh, an Oscar just for changing out of a
2: wedding dress in a Camaro. Like <laughs> that's just what I. Need. If there was an audience that wasn't going to Star Wars in 1977 they were going to that Burt Reynolds film exactly. that is I think why it's the number two at the box yeah. office but I think there were, everybody was ready for joy and this is not a
0: joyful movie and I think that's the other reason
2: I guess, yeah. I don't know how much joy there is in the late 70s. No. It's a pretty dark <laughs> I know. era. We're, just, we're like headed into film. 78 with Saturday Night Fever and The Deer Hunter and, you know, all of that. Well, Saturday Night Fever is a great example to bring up. Like, there's another example of maybe a director making a film not realizing how disgusting and horribly violent his lead character is. And we watch that film today and it's like, Oh, he oh, attempts to rape someone. He's a monster. <laughs> like, yes. like the the you know his opposite star. Like it's is um, the seventies are wild. They're wild, and until like, and then it just gets translated. This is all so reductive and so like generous. But you know you have the bright shininess of the eighties with John Hughes, but then that same stuff is in the John Hughes mm-hmm. films, and it's just kind of disguise and it's only now that we're like Buzzfeed is writing about it. So you know, the, the the wool is pulled off of our eyes or the veil. Like it's just so is this a
1: movie you think could be saved in, in a re-edit? Like
2: part of I was hmm. wondering
1: that. Part of me is like hmm. I understand the wants to take out the happy endings musical thing, but part of me wonders if you actually should use it as a frame. Like, is there a way to make her the protagonist of it in a way that as presented they are not right like they're presented hmm. as co-protagonists but if if it was more about her surviving and escaping him
0: and that is the the movie that made could be today fantastic um i think that i think you're entirely correct i think that's the movie made today we also have to understand that like, i'm sure people didn't know what they were viscerally reacting to at the time but like we see this stuff as, with 21st century red flags all over mm-hmm. it, but at the time, I don't know how many people would have seen that. Like we we just got no fault divorce as of 1972, mm-hmm. so that's all still new, right? I mean, we're talking about Mr. Goodbar this uh, this year as well, mm-hmm. which is a whole
2: other point. Of lots of lots of fun <laughs> family. Anthony, Anthony and I went drinking yeah. after watching <laughs> yeah, <yeah, yeah>, yeah. <laughs> like that at like
1: 12:30 a.m. But that's a movie that understands what it's about as much as it yes. is sort of visiting this kind of visceral. Horrible experience upon you as a viewer, it does it to a purpose. Whereas this one, I feel like there's no heat sink for that emotion to go into where I'm like, mm-hmm. like part of the horror of this movie is like, Do you understand how horrible this movie is? You know? <laughs> Whereas Mr. Yeah. Goodbar knows. Um
2: Exactly what it is. Yeah. You
1: know. Yeah, but we did need
2: a stiff is-
0: drink after that.
2: <laughs> that was a nine-ounce glass of wine. <laughs> and no. we argued over who was going to buy it for each
0: other. Now, as we bring this episode to a close, is this a movie you recommend people watching in its current form?
1: I would be careful who I recommend it to. I think it is, mm-hmm. as I said, like it is, it is a Scorsese movie, which means it is technically an amazingly made film I also do think it helps you understand his later stuff but there is a part of me that's like I feel like I should be putting on radioactive protection before I handle this movie you know like I want to be wearing big <laughs> lead gloves or something it's a lot to endure um, it feels like it was a lot to endure in the making and it's a lot to endure in the watching um, for a director who I think we are now starting to over approach with rosy colored glasses and it's like well there's something live and dangerous in this movie i think
2: i agree alicia yourself i can't say it any better than anthony that was the perfect way to end it's it's true i think there's only certain people i'd recommend it to but i I do think a younger generation that is scorsese obsessed owe it to themselves to watch this if they truly want to understand a 50-year career in filmmaking um, or even understand film better. And this is
0: one of the movies I, I think you do have to know what was going on behind the scenes. Like, there's some movies, like, you, you're like, you can watch it in a vacuum, whatever. This is one you have mm-hmm. to be like, oh, no, this is autobiographical. Like, this is, mm-hmm. you are seeing his pain on film. And with that note, (laughs) Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us once again.
2: Ah, yeah, thank you. This was fun. I will, I do have one recommendation. If you're going to watch New York, New York, maybe you just have a little photo of Martin Scorsese's character from Shark Tale. He's the shark with the big bushy eyebrows. (laughs) He made it for his like nine-year-old daughter because she wasn't allowed to watch any of his films, and perhaps that will help you um, get through this film. (laughs) How about yourself, Anthony? What are you up to these
0: days?
1: Uh, Oh, uh, well, you can catch my uh, film program at the review cinema. I do Dumpster Raccoon cinema. We're in the middle of a high exploitation retrospective right now. <laughs> um, if you want to watch great roles for older ladies, we, you can watch <laughs> Betty Davis and Joan Crawford go at it. Um, I have a book coming out later this year called Day Spring that has nothing to do with cinema but everything to do with difficult, toxic relationships. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly thematic. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Thank you for joining us once again. It's always an absolute pleasure.
1: Uh, thank you for having me. I don't know if the pleasure was absolute this time. It was-
2: <laughs> we laughed. We but had a laugh. it was complicated
1: and interesting, and that is usually a mark of good art, so thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> that is what we endeavor. We'll give you something fun next time. <laughs> And you can join us in two weeks for something else fun, where we're going to be joined once again by Alicia Fletcher and our very own supervising producer, Emily Gange, as we look at two end-of-an-era films with Between the Lines and Peppermint Soda. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on 4 HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Alicia Fletcher and Anthony Oliveira as guests. Supervised producer is Emily Gangye Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.